Good evening. We're glad to have you back at the digital campus for Newark United Pentecostal Church. As you know by now, we are in a series studying about lies Christians believe. My uh, assignment for this evening is to examine uh, one of these lies, and that lie is that it is a sin to be tempted. This lie, which is quite widespread in, in many places, tends to bring discouragement to God's people and to bring condemnation to our thoughts, among other things. It's based in large part on a misunderstanding of some statements in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Its foundation is rooted in the intellectual system of salvation that, that uh, uh, just believe to be saved way of looking at things. If our, if our salvation is achieved by mere mental assent, then it follows that just thinking could also be classified as sin. In the religious tradition in which I grew up, it was commonly expressed as, it is just as bad to think it as to do it. Uh, it's from this paradigm that uh, I would like to launch this study. A major scripture used as a basis for this doctrine is Matthew 5, 27. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is uh, from the New Living Translation. A quick scan of these verses could and indeed has caused this misinterpretation, especially if one minimizes or ignores those two words with lust. The Weymouth translation renders uh, this particular set of scriptures as, you have heard that it was said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I tell you that whosoever or whoever looks at a woman and cherishes lustful thoughts has already in his heart become guilty with regard to her. And therein lies the key to this situation. Uh, let me here settle early in this little study that being tempted is in itself not a sin. Do I have proof? Well, Matthew chapter four, verse one tells us, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. If just being tempted were sinful, then Jesus was disqualified from being the innocent sacrifice for our sins because the Bible clearly declares that he was tempted. And it is not the mere temptation, 
but the entertaining of that temptation that leads to sin. Even Jesus had to think about the temptations in order to come up with a, a proper response to refute the logic of the devil's challenge. These temptations were at least in part attempts to sidetrack Jesus from the agony of the crucifixion and, of course, the efficacy of the crucifixion. His humanity would have strongly desired to avoid the path laid out before him. But just saying no would have left the door open to further argument. He had to think about the temptation enough to negate any other contention along those same lines. In the word lay his solutions. They were live by every word of God. Do not tempt the Lord. Worship God only. Please note that every scripture Jesus used appealed back to the position and power of God. Overcoming the first temptation only cleared the way for yet another. And then the pattern repeated. Temptation, contemplation, but not entertaining. Finding and declaring the answer from the word of God in such a way as to make it final. It's interesting and educational to note that in his prayer in the garden, just before the arrest, Jesus was still dealing with this same issue of the will of the flesh and the will of the spirit. You see, to resist a temptation does not necessarily mean that we are through with the problem. In James 1 and 14, again, New Living Translation, it tells us, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. Verse 15, these desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Some have tried to make a, a distinction as to different categories of temptation. For example, John Owen, a 17th century theologian said, when such temptation <clears throat> comes from without, it is unto the soul an indifferent thing, neither good nor evil, unless it be consented unto. But the very proposal from within, it being the soul's own act, is its sin. <clears throat> this is from his writing, uh, uh, Works, volume 6, page 194. James made no such distinction. Without something within us desiring what tempts us, there's no temptation. The world and the devil have no lever to move us without the handle of our own desires. For example, Adam and Eve 
were created without the brokenness that mars all of their descendants they were created innocent however innocence does not translate as without desires genesis 3 6 gives us a succinct description of the levers of lust or desire that the serpent manipulated to lead them astray. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, we all like good things, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, we appreciate pretty things. And a tree to be desired, there's that word, desired, you see, desire was already present, even in innocence. You can't separate it from humanity. It was to be desired to make one wise, and wouldn't we all like to be wise? Unfortunately, in many cases, we are otherwise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. To intimate that Jesus, the second Adam, did not have within him the same basic desires as in our first parents and then in their fallen children. And that puts him in a different category from the rest of mankind. It's just, that doesn't make sense. That lack of kinship would prevent him from legally being our kinsman redeemer. The fact that he grew and matured, as we find in Luke 2 and 52, proves that he was subject to the same hormones and biological processes that the rest of us have experienced. He was a human child. He went through puberty and the physical and emotional storms of being a teen. If he lacked normal desires, then he could not endure the same temptations we face. To put his temptations in a separate category from what we face is a not so subtle denial of the good news that he came and he took our place and our punishment. Over half a century ago, Brother Arliss Glass illustrated this teaching of James in a, in a Life of Christ class in Texas Bible College when he said, the first look is the devil's, the second look is yours. A biblical example of this progression is found in the story of David and Bathsheba. 2 Samuel 11 and 2 starts it out this way, and it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. The story proceeds, the willful look, contemplation, plan, the action. 
To happen to see Bathsheba bathing was not in itself a sin. At some point, though, an unplanned glimpse enticed his attention, dragged his sight and thoughts where they should not have gone. At some point, what Weymouth translated as cherishing lustful thoughts gave birth to the sinful actions which almost toppled a kingdom. In reference, it was in reference to this story that Martin Luther made his famous statement, you can keep the birds from flying over your head, or you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. Early in this study, I referred to Matthew 4 and Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. I want to finish it out with the culmination of the lifetime of tests, trials, and temptations experienced by the man Jesus during his sojourn among us. In Hebrews 4 and 15, uh, we have a summation that this high priest of ours understands our weakness for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Now this seems plain enough, but there are those who, in spite of this declaration, hold that some temptations are in themselves sinful. In other words, if you were not sinning, you would not be tempted. So because you're tempted, you have sinned, by being tempted. For example, William G.T. Shedd, a 19th century theologian who is still quoted in his three-volume study called Dogmatic Theology, said he, speaking of Jesus, was tempted in every way that man is, excepting by that class of temptations that are sinful because originating in evil and forbidden desire. That's in book two, page 343. He also wrote, Christ's temptations were all of them sinless, but very many of the temptations of fallen men are, are sinful. That is, they are the hankering and solicitation of forbidden and wicked desire. The desire to steal, to commit adultery, to murder is sinful. And whoever is tempted by it to the act of theft or adultery or murder is sinfully tempted. Again, from Dogmatic Theology, Book 2, page 341. Uh, I didn't note any exemption like was mentioned here in Hebrews 4.15. The King James and American Standard Versions translate the pertinent words as in all points tempted. The Amplified and Weymouth say in every respect, while the New International Version and the Net Bible use the term in every way. And the Greek word from which they translate all points is a very inclusive term, all. 
It doesn't seem that there can be a scriptural basis in this verse for the way it's presented by those who want to use it to bolster their erroneous doctrine of temptation itself being a sin. What we experience, Jesus also faced. Let me close with another spiritual, scriptural passage from Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 16. We also know that the Son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Verse 17, therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect, like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take the way, away the sins of the people. Verse 18, since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. He has experienced what we've gone through. He understands. He can and will help. Being tempted is not a sin. Yielding to temptation is. Let him help you. Can we pray? Dear Lord, thank you for becoming one of us. Thank you for subjecting yourself to all that we as humans face. Thank you for your word which lights our way so that we can know when we are walking paths of righteousness and not trudging under the load of undeserved condemnation just because we are human and heirs of the brokenness humanity bears. Thank you for loving us and letting us know of that love. Oh Lord, help us to have discerning ears and sharp eyes to know veracity from error. Help us recognize truth as different from lies. Plant your word in its proper understanding in our hearts. Guide us, Lord. We need your direction. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for joining us again today. And we will invite you to engage with your small groups. And while you are playing this month. See if you can find those uh, cleverly di disguised lies that may be well spread and hidden in those games and in that play. Lord bless you. Good night. We'll see you later.